0: Welcome to the Didache Divine Service on this, the 19th of October. We are finishing up the 9th and 10th commandments and the close of the commandments from the Catechism today. We are kind of transitioning from lesson two to lesson three. So, someone asked the prayers that I use at the beginning are those prayers that are found on the very first page of a lesson underneath the icon picture. So today I'll be using the prayer for Lesson 3, even though our reading today will be still a review from Lesson 2, and then uh, we'll be transitioning into Lesson 3 today and next week. The hymn is 581, our Ten Commandments hymn. These are the holy ten commands. We sing stanzas one, and then ten through twelve. Stanza ten is the stanza that takes up the ninth and the tenth commandments, dealing with covetousness. Let us begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. The Lord be with you. And also with you. Let us pray. Almighty and everlasting God, you despise nothing you have made and forgive the sins of all who are penitent. Create in us new and contrite hearts, that lamenting our sins and acknowledging our wretchedness, we may receive from you full pardon and forgiveness. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Hymn 581, stanzas one, ten 10 through 12.
1: These the are
0: in our review today of the Ten Commandments, and as we look forward to the Ninth and the tenth Commandments, which deal with the subject of coveting, I also want to give you an opportunity to go back and ask questions if there's a question on your mind and you felt like we didn't have time to go through it. So we will handle our review today with me giving you terms. Now, no cheating, all right? So I want to see how you, how you do. There's enough of you here that someone's got to have the answer. I'm going to go through our review, starting back all the way with the first commandment, and I'll give you one or two terms from each of those, and then um, uh, you can shout out the answer. And before we leave the commandment, if you have any question, let's take it up at that time, all right? So under the first, Commandments and first commandment, we had the most number of terms, a total of 10, because these terms dealt not only with the first commandment, but with the law in general. So here's my first question. What term is this where... We speak of the knowledge of our sin and corruption and to be turned away from our sin and self-reliance by God's word to reliance upon Christ. So it involves a realization of the knowledge of one's sin and then to be turned from reliance upon ourself away from our sin to reliance upon Christ. What do we call that? Repentance, Repentance. that's right. Uh, The Greek word is metanoia, and it's a literally kind of a change of mind, but it's a, a change of mind that's rooted in faith, where I used to rely upon self, and now I rely upon Christ. I didn't think of myself as a sinner. Now I think of myself as a sinner. I didn't realize how much I needed Christ. Now I realize I need him. So... Uh, this is only on the recording. I keep going back and forth. You who are here can see that visual. But there, it is a change. And repentance, there's another word related to this, um, which is a word associated with coming to faith. It's really when repentance is worked in the heart of someone for the first time who's, who's an unbeliever and becomes a Christian. What do we call that? It's a It's kind of a synonym. Do, do you know? It's not one of your terms, but... Someone who didn't have faith, and then they're brought to faith. Conversion, Conversion. that's right. So conversion is really repentance when it happens the first time. Okay? And so um, we are all in need of conversion again and again and again, or we're all in need of repentance. We're coming up, this coming weekend we'll celebrate uh, the Reformation. And the first of Luther's 95 theses, posted on the castle church door, posted, It wasn't a revolutionary act, that was the bulletin board. It was written in Latin, but the first of the 95 theses was when our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, said repent, he meant that the entire life of the Christian was one of repentance. And so our study of God's law is chiefly rooted in that spiritual function of bringing about our repentance, converting us from the self-righteousness that still is a part of our sinful nature, the self-reliance, to reliance upon Christ and his mercy. The parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector to convert us from, I thank God I'm not like David here, that wretched sinner, I do this and I do that. No, to convert us from being a Pharisee to being the tax collector, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So that's at the heart of the spiritual <coughs> function of the law. Wally. That would be
1: considered a, a passive
0: faith, when versus an active faith? Uh, he asks, that's that would be considered a passive faith as opposed to an active faith. As
1: far as conversion's conversion
0: is concerned, Well, the act of conversion, yeah, we are brought to repentance. Repentance is a miracle of God, the Holy Spirit, through the word. Conversion is a miracle of God, the Holy Spirit. So yes, in that sense, uh, passive. But but faith itself that is a miracle is a very active thing. It claims the promises of God and so forth. Okay. Another term on under the first commandment: whatever a person trusts in or looks to for his greatest good, help, comfort in life.
1: Is God?
0: A God, yeah, small G. So, there is no such thing as an atheist. Because everybody believes in something. It may be yourself, maybe your money or your property, like the rich man in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, his position, and so forth, but everyone trusts in something. And you know what your God is if you ask yourself the question what is the one thing? I just can't live without. I mean, I would just die if I didn't have this. In fact, I'd jump off a cliff if I didn't have this. Well, then that exposes who your idol is, who your God is. And again, the sinful nature that still is a part of us as Christians is self-righteous Pharisee, is an idol worshiper. So you see, we go back to our whole life is one of repentance, Where the old nature is killed, the new nature is raised up. Okay, finally, under the first commandment, how about this term? What we are to do and not to do. Or the demands of God upon every person. What do we call that? The law. That's right. The law. The law tells us what we are to do. The gospel, on the other hand, tells us what. God has done for us in Christ. It's the good news of what Jesus has done. Without the gospel, we would be lost in our sins. Okay, I'll move on to the second commandment. See, I'm at least giving you a a hint that the term is under the second commandment. Um, The words by which God tells us who he is and by which we call upon him in trouble. Pray, praise, and give thanks. This is an easy, hard one. The, the words by which God tells us who he is. George, did you say? The name of God. The name of God. Okay, shout it out. Don't, don't be shy. Okay? Yeah, the, it's, a, it's a difficult definition. How do you define the name of God? Because the second commandment says, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, or thou shalt not take the name of of the Lord your God in vain. It's the words by which God, he reveals himself to us, tells us who he is. And the, the words by which we call upon him. Lord God, Heavenly Father, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Lord Jesus, okay? Name of God. Yes? What about Yahweh? What about Yahweh, Y-A-H-W-E-H, is an, uh, an attempt to... Put into words that we can, a word that we can pronounce, the I am at the burning bush. So Yahweh means I am. The other version of that is Jehovah.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Okay? So Yahweh, uh, that is closer to saying it in Hebrew. Okay? All right, good. Uh, Last term on this one anything that involves. The occult or seeking knowledge, information, guidance, or pleasure from spirits other than God, including astrology, fortune-telling, seances, palm reading, Ouija boards, etc., all of which would be forbidden under the second commandment. <laughs> Satanic arts, <clears throat> the old uh, translation had witchcraft. Okay? But included here is also superstition as a separate term trying to seek help from God through ways other than what he attached his word of promise to. Okay, All right. Under the third commandment. And if anybody has a question as we go, just raise your hand. To devote yourself and anything of your person in life to the hearing and learning of God's word, including a day, a time, a work, a place, a thing. what's that? worship Not exactly. <clears throat> worship at the heart of worship is faith. To devote yourself or anything to God's word. What's that? To keep, it holy. To keep holy. Remember holiness has to do with God's word. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy why is the day kept holy? Because the word of God is a part of it. Why is Cherie holy? Because she lives her life according to God's word. Okay, so God's word and holiness go together. So in the Lord's Prayer, when we pray, hallowed be thy name, we're praying that we would lead our lives according to God's word, that I would preach it, and that you would receive it and live your lives according to it. That's a Holy life, hallowed be thy name. Again, these terms are intended to are intended to define words or phrases that are found in the catechism. Susan, I was going to say sanctify. Is
1: that the same
0: thing or is that a different? Definition? No, uh, to keep holy and to sanctify are the same thing. Hmm? And so the Holy Spirit, <clears throat> holy. Why is he? Here's a good. I'm glad you asked that question because. The Holy Spirit, we speak of him as the sanctifier. How does he sanctify? He sanctifies not by zapping us. Okay? The Holy Spirit sanctifies by the word of God. You can never separate the Holy Spirit from the holy word of God. Okay? So, hallowed be thy name is to sanctify, which is the Spirit's work, by the word devoting the day, the time, the work, the place to God's word makes it holy. Yesterday afternoon, for a new member of the congregation bought a new house, I did a house blessing. The Apostle Paul says all things are sanctified by the word of God and prayer. And prayer is the voice of faith that claims the promises. Remember, in the second commandment, we said... uh, um, God says, Pray to me. Third commandment, Hear me. Do you see how they go uh, together? All right. Moving on then to this definition under the third commandment <clears throat> the revelation of God to mankind through the scriptures of the apostles and prophets. Through this prophetic and apostolic revelation, God tells us of Himself. Shows us our sin, brings us to faith in Christ, etc. Prophecy. Prophecy. Prophecy, preaching, more basic. God's revelation through the scriptures of the apostles and prophets is called Word of God. Word of God. All right? So if I to say, what is the Bible? God's Word or the Word of God. It is God's revelation to us by his Holy Spirit through the men who were apostles and prophets that wrote the scriptures. The the ink to parchment was done by the apostles and prophets, but they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Holy men of God spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. When we go into our readings, whether it's Sunday morning Bible class or a catechesis here where we read from the scriptures and I ask you questions, I want you to find those answers from the scriptures themselves, not your imagination or what What does that mean to you, Polly? Just tell me what it means to you. That's, I, frankly, I'm not interested in what it means to you. Uh, I mean, but to be honest, what does God's word say? And when in catechesis, for example, and in chapel, and the children are reciting Bible verses or catechism, I want it absolutely word for word, not because I'm legalistic, but rather because insisting on word for word actually helps to teach the integrity of God's word. If this is God's word, it is worth saying accurately, okay? All right. Fourth commandment terms: To give respect, reverence, esteem, love, obedience to those whom God has placed in authority over you. What is it? Honor. Honor, To honor. Again, see? Honor your father and your mother. There's a term. So there's a definition. Now, what function of the law applies to all of society, whether they believe in God or not, to um, maintain order and so forth? Civil. It's a civil function of the law. Do you know the other expression we use for that? Civil. To curb. To curb the gross outbreaks of evil and sin. Uh, what function of the law Shows us our sin and how much we need our Savior? The mirror. And for Christians, what function of the law is it that grounds us in what is true and right and good so that we're not led astray by our own weaknesses and the sinful flesh and the society around us? A rule or a guide or a standard. This is what is true. Again, God's word tells us what is is true. All right, so three functions of the law. Fifth commandment. How modern man measures the worth of human life by how comfortable and happy people are. It was a phrase. The quality of life, which is a bad way to to, to evaluate life. I mean, your, your, your life might be lousy, Cherie, but it's still the life God gave you, and it's holy and sacred. Okay, Uh, that's good. Sixth commandment. The institution established by God for the union of a man and a woman in one flesh, for the procreation of children and the help and comfort given and received by each of them in prosperity and adversity. Marriage. Marriage. Yeah, this institution... The man and the woman are to love, honor, and be faithful to each other until death parts them. It is entered into by the public exchange of promises. But as I pointed out to the couple on Friday, Leah and Nicholas, God is the one joining them together. So when you enter into marriage and you're the right component parts, and by that I mean you're a man and you're a woman, and that's the right component parts. If you enter into marriage and you're the right component parts, and you enter into it by the giving and receiving of promises, I promise to love you for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, and so forth, forsaking all others, give myself entirely to you, then the pastor says, I pronounce you husband and wife. Even the justice of the peace Pronounces you married. And since God establishes even the civil realm, a civil marriage is still God joining them together. In the churchly wedding, God is joining them together, and you hear in the Christian church, I pronounce you husband and wife in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It's actually a very important thing, and Jesus speaks of it when he says, What God has joined together. Let not man separate. So there's more than the two of you involved in marriage, if you're a husband and wife. The third party is the most important party because it it done be his institution. I created it. Therefore, he decides what the component parts are. So you can be two women or two men or a, a man and a chicken, and you can call yourself married, but you ain't married. Not in the eyes of God. And even natural law says the same thing. And natural law for several millennia has said the same thing. Sometimes they've had multiple wives, but it's always been a man and a woman. Anything else is destructive of the fabric of society and culture. All right. He's a bigot. No, we're just following God's word. All right, finally, uh, seventh commandment. All the material gifts which God has given you over which he has appointed you uh, a steward. Property. Property, yeah. And God gives you all of these things under the second table of the law. That are pr- they're all protected under the second table of the law, but he gives them all to you in order that you might serve your neighbor in love. And we'll talk more about that uh, in a moment. And then the eighth commandment, to lie in any way, to withhold the truth, or remain silent when our neighbor's good name is being attacked. To use the truth for the purpose of injuring our neighbor, It's false testimony. Yeah. False testimony or false witness includes all of those things that are forbidden under the Eighth Commandment. All right. Now, what I'd like to take you into next in this review is uh, on the board over here, so you could see I've written a shorthand outline of the Ten Commandments so that we can review a little bit of the structure of them. And... The first table of the law refers to the first three commandments in the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. The Old Testament, in multiple places, and Jesus reinforces it in the New Testament, summarizes the first table of the law with what words? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And so we have in the explanations, starting with the first commandment, we should fear and love God so that we we should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. And then that's taken into all the other explanations. We should fear and love God. We should fear and love God. So the first table of the law, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, is the backbone and foundation of all of the ten commandments Uh, last week in the sermon on sunday you may have recalled i said the best way to love your neighbor is to love the lord your god first with all your heart soul mind and strength in other words if you love god you will love your neighbor rightly if you love your neighbor more than you love god you will love your neighbor wrongly you'll get into trouble okay so uh We had summarized the first commandment you shall have no other gods god is saying trust me i am the only god there is and i have made you and and i love you and i've created you and even when you rebelled i continue to love you and i sent my son to save you trust me he is worthy of trust and because we trust in him he says pray to me under the second commandment we use his name rightly in support of truth and so forth but ultimately to call upon him in every trouble, to pray praise and give thanks. Third commandment, hear me, listen to me. We who trust in him, we trust in him precisely because we have heard his word. Uh, Some of you may be familiar with this Hebrew phrase, Shema Israel. Do you know what that means in Hebrew? Deuteronomy 6, 4, hear, O Israel. When the Lord says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, he's the only God there is. The word here actually means trust, believe me. Okay, So to hear is to believe. So when Jesus says, you are not my disciples because you do not hear me. They heard the words. What was the problem? They didn't, trust. They didn't believe. That's right. All right. So that's the first table of the law. In the second table of the law, fourth through the tenth commandment, how does the Bible summarize that? Again, it's love. Your love your neighbor as yourself is how it's typically translated, and I've been emphasizing the idea of in place of yourself. Because that's the connotation there, and that's what Jesus does. He loves his Father with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he loves us, though we don't deserve it, in place of himself as he dies for our sins. All right. Now, in the second table of the law, we have been emphasizing how God protects his good gifts. So, yes, of course, the law shows us our sin. That's the spiritual function. It's always accusing us. Here's another Latin phrase for you, lex law, semper always accusat. So you can speak Latin, uh, it sounds a lot like English, right? Lex semper accusat, okay? Uh, the law always accuses. And that's true. But the law, is it good or is it evil? It's good. The law describes what is good. You know, quite apart from our sin, the law describes what is good. I mean, even even a rank unbeliever knows that. Is it better to murder someone or to preserve life? Is it it better to to kill the old lady or help her across the street? I mean, even the rank unbeliever knows which is which there, right? So the law defines what is good. And, And that's why to transgress the law is not only that that's a bad thing to do, but it has consequences that mess up God's good order. 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 O-R-D-E-R. That's an important thing in the book of Genesis in creation. God is ordering things. As much as we live in a world that teaches evolutionary theory and that there is no order, it's absurd, Everybody, if you just stand back and look, you don't have to be a Christian to realize that there's order. Why does water, when it frees, stay on top and not sink? That doesn't make any sense, but there's order in the creation, male and female and so forth. And God not only creates, but he delineates that order in the first and second chapters of Genesis. So the law, and the second table of the law in particular, are protecting those good gifts. So fourth commandment, the gift of family, the gift of father and mother, and God's authority in those institutions. You sin against your mama, you disrespect your mama, you're disrespecting God. If everybody respected their father and their mother, there wouldn't be any crime on the streets of Milwaukee. Zippo, nada, nothing. It's true. But because there isn't, or there's a breakdown in family, I'm telling you right now, single-parent households are detrimental to the society and culture. That in no way means that I should say that a, a woman should stay with a husband who's beating her up. That's a separate issue. But copulating ad infinitum with people who are not your spouse and popping out kids here and there that have no stability of a father and mother in the home is detrimental to the society and culture. Look at the consequences. So the fourth commandment means that there are protections that God wants to give to this most important institution of family, again, the component parts are a father and a mother through whom God brings children into the world. That leads us to the fifth commandment, the sanctity of life. And then marriage, the sixth commandment, the sanctity of marriage. And we pointed out when we were going over these that there is a very interrelated kind of Trinitarian relationship to those three. uh, Fourth, fifth and sixth. They all fit together. Okay, If you honor your marriage your family will go well. If husband is loving his wife, mama will be able to love and care for the children and he will be also helping them and teaching them through that and so forth. John.
1: I'm curious
0: Well, uh, he says, why do the Roman Catholics get to claim the pro-life position and we Lutherans are nowhere to be seen? Well, we are to be seen, but the, one of the problems is Roman Catholicism is, at least for the most part on that issue, uh, one voice. Uh-huh. You don't have the Roman Catholic Church of the ELCA and then the Roman Catholic Church of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod or of the Wisconsin Synod. So our voice as Lutherans often gets uh, muddled and muted by the ELCA, which pretty soon they won't be bigger than us because they're losing membership at such an alarming rate. But when people in the United States, and certainly the left and the media would be in this camp, they're they're not going to go to... Matthew Harrison, the president of the Missouri Synod, to have a statement about our views on abortion. They're going to go to the bishop of the ELCA and who will say it sounds like a great thing. The woman's right to murder her child. I mean, to choose. Okay? So I think that's part of it. But we do stand. There's there's Lutherans for Life and, and and the Life March and so forth. But all right, so These three particularly go together, 4th, 5th, and 6th, with family, life, and marriage that God wishes to protect. And then it leads us to the 7th commandment, you shall not steal the gift of property. And finally, the 8th commandment, one's good name, the gift of a reputation. Now, this is all going to lead, then, into our final discussion on the 10 commandments uh, Specifically, the ninth and the 10th. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, the ninth commandment. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor, the 10th commandments. Now, covetousness is a sin of the heart. If you look over all of these little things on the board as, as simple reminders of what each commandment is about... The sin of covetousness, which is a matter of the heart, takes us back to which? The first. The first. Trust, yeah. So <laughs> co- covetousness is literally false faith or idolatrous faith. It's making a God out of those things that God has not given you. So when we talk about coveting as desiring or insisting upon that which God has not given you, you're actually, you're not only coveting that, person or that thing, you're making a god out of them. Okay? Wally. Covetousness leads to murder. Covetousness leads to murder. Covetous leads, covetousness leads to adultery under the sixth commandment, stealing under the seventh commandment. Uh, you covet someone, you envy them because of what they are, so you gossip about them and you run down their good name and reputation under the eighth commandment. OK, covetousness is the source of all sinful actions, which is another way of saying that idolatrous faith of the heart is the source of all sinful actions. Susan. Coveting stuff that God has not given you doesn't seem as big a deal as having false gods. Well, it is as big a deal because it's the same thing.
1: Explain that more.
0: Explain that more.
1: It's in the law.
0: Well, um, whatever you trust in or whatever you insist upon having, even if you don't have it, is idolatry. So, by definition, whatever you covet, you've made an idol out of. Now, if you're asking, why don't people see it that way? And that's because rationalization is uh, a huge motivation. Because I realize I'm a sinner, but it's not that bad. So we're always trying to qualify. But before God, covetousness is idolatry. Done Well, this is a very complicated kind of thing, difficult to decipher. Notice how I said, to to covet is to desire that which God has not given you, to desire and insist upon that. Let, Let us say, if you're working a job and you'd like to get another job because you have interest in the work that this other job would allow you to do, and it might pay better so that you can provide for your family, is that sinful? No, though it may be. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. In other words, anything, anything that we insist upon, it's not, it's not evil to desire to make a good living. It is evil to worship your money. It's not evil to desire to work hard. It's sinful to become a workaholic that does nothing else but that and you ignore other responsibilities. What all of this kind of discussion indicates is that even our best actions are tainted with sin, sin, you know? So if on my anniversary I give my wife some flowers, am I doing it purely out of love and expecting nothing in return or is a little bit hoping she really likes what I've done? and shows her appreciation with a return of affection. And if she doesn't, then I'll stop. See? So even a good thing can have bad motivations. So this is why why the Apostle James says, whoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he's guilty of all. We'll We'll come back to this when we get to confession and absolution, and we have the great story of David, the king in the Old Testament, who covets another man's wife, and it leads to all manner of disaster in his life out of that one covetous desire. But the point here is it's very difficult to, there is no such thing as a pure motivation. Therefore, we had better be living by faith in Christ, not at all in ourselves. Okay. Now, a couple more things I have to say on the Ninth and Tenth Commandments, and then we'll go into them specifically with the terms. And that is, the question is often raised about the numbering of the Ten Commandments. Okay, In the the Old Testament times, they, they were not called Ten Commandments as much as Ten Words. The Ten Words. And for the Jews, for the Old Testament children of Israel... The first word was, I, the Lord your God, have brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Then the second word, you shall have no other gods, and so forth. And so it ended with the tenth, as you shall not covet your neighbor's house or his wife or workers or animals. We are not Jews that God brought out of the land of Egypt. From the New Testament period of the Apostles and forward, the first commandment was no longer the first word, I brought you out of the land of Egypt, but you shall have no other gods. So everything moved up, which divided the 10th into the ninth and the 10th. Today, you will have various other Protestant groups who divide the first commandment. You shall have no other gods, and then you shall not make unto thee a graven image. So if you see that, then you'll understand that. But the Roman Catholic tradition, the Church Catholic, and then Roman and Lutheran and Eastern Orthodox numbers it the way we have it in the small catechism. Tom? did um, God
1: bring the Israelites out of Egypt after
0: Moses brought the Catholics down? No, no, Egypt? no, no. They left Egypt through the Red Sea to Mount Sinai, where they received the law. Yep. OK. Now, if you'll turn in your uh, Lutheran catechesis book to page 65, you have the Ninth Commandment there. And we'll take the language of the Ninth Commandment, the language of the Tenth Commandment, and the terms. And then we will go to the close of the commandments. And I will ask you, and I, you can please respond, what is the ninth commandment? You shall not covet your neighbor's house. Here, God protects the affections of the heart from idolatry, or what he, that's what he intends to do. We say repeatedly what the scriptures teach, that the heart is the seat of faith. Now, the faith of the heart is not necessarily in Christ or in the triune God. The faith of the heart could be in something else. Also for us as Christians, faith in Christ and faith in just about everything else vie for the number one dominance in our hearts. So when we say the heart is the seat of faith and faith's affections, the things We love the things we give of ourselves to. Bear in mind, Jesus says, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, murder, theft, adultery, fornication, false witness, and so forth. That's because apart from faith in Christ created in the heart, the heart of sinful man is desperately wicked, Jesus says. So what we talked about just a moment ago, all sinful words and actions flow from the heart. So we are, as Christians, we remain somewhat schizophrenic. And Paul expresses that when he says, the flesh, there he's talking about the sinful nature, lusts against the spirit or desires things that are contrary contrary to the spirit. And the spirit desires things that are contrary to the flesh, there's warfare, so that you do not always do the things that you wish as a Christian. So when you hear me preach about how I want to love God, I want to love my neighbor, and then I find myself not doing it, it's expressing that conflict, okay? But in the Ninth and the Tenth Commandments, God is not only wanting to protect the affections of our heart the heart being the seat of one's trust, one's faith, but also wants to point out, as I think Wally or or Tom mentioned, that out of that covetous desire, all the other transgressions flow. Okay, so it becomes a warning. No wonder, then, historically, for 1,500 years, uh, they divided the ninth and the 10th into two commandments because of how how devastating covetousness is. The Ninth Commandment deals with more inanimate objects like things, house, property, money. The Tenth Commandment especially zeroes in on relationships like another man's wife or trying to get the affections of someone else to turn to you. All right. Um, The explanation. What does this mean? We should fear and love God... So that we do not scheme to get our neighbor's inheritance or house, or get it in a way which only appears right, but help and be of service to him in keeping it. I love this explanation with the language of scheming. Does anybody remember what the old translation was? It actually finds its way into jurisprudence, which is this field of law. David? craftily seek, or obtaining something by a show of right. right. Do you remember that phraseology? A show of right actually finds its way, it's it's of Christian origin, but it finds its way into the judicial realm in, in the civil courts. To obtain something by a show of right is to use the law to obtain something legally, even though what you're obtaining or what you're doing is morally wrong. Do you follow that? So, uh, you know, the, the, the spilling of the hot coffee from McDonald's, and then you sue them because they didn't have the label warning uh, it's hot and you could get burned. So then you get several million dollars from McDonald's because of the blisters on your crotch. That's that's an example of obtaining something by a show of right or in a way which only appears right or where you use the law to obtain what your heart covets. Polly? Yes, Jacob and Esau. Jacob uh, coveted the blessing of his father and he arranged a way to get it by a show of right. But what's really dramatic there is God still honored it in the end because his choice of Jacob preceded Jacob's shenanigans, but that's another story, okay? So um, so that we do not scheme to get our neighbors' in heart, uh, inheritance or house. So the scheming is the plotting and planning that begins in the heart and then manifests itself in words or deeds. We will see this with King David, who concocts the scheme to get Uriah the Hittite's wife. He sends his Arkansas troopers to her house and brings her back to the governor's mansion, and then they have an affair, and then she becomes pregnant. And then he uses his office to cover those things up. David was the governor of Arkansas, wasn't he? uh, instead of obtaining, notice, how would you characterize scheming to get what doesn't belong to you, arranging things legally so that you can literally steal away what belongs to another? What kind of motivation is at work there in contrast to the positive of helping and be of service to your neighbor in keeping his inheritance. It's characteristic of all the transgressions. Yeah. It's you who wants it. Okay, you're, you're on the right track. Remember how we summarized the law here. Love God, love your neighbor.
1: you trusting
0: yourself. Yes, yes. You're loving yourself. So it's Selfish. Every sin is fundamentally selfish. selfish. See, that's more overarching than simply every sin is stealing or something like that. Every sin is selfish or to put it another way, in every sin you're loving yourself and making a god out of yourself out of your own will. You follow? Your own desires. I got to have this. Okay? So again, notice how it violates the 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 foundation of the law, love for God and love for the neighbor. Sure. That's why you're
2: emphasizing not love your neighbor as yourself.
0: Correct. That's why I'm emphasizing love your neighbor in place of yourself. Yeah. So you want to help and be of service to your neighbor in keeping it. The attitude, I'm not going to get involved. I'm not going to get involved. When someone is being hurt.
2: Right. I mean the '80s were: called the Do it for
0: you for a long time. Right. I said this last week, I've said it before that part of the design and the order in God's good law is this great truth, that when you sincerely live according to it, it's much more fulfilling. To put it another way, when you love your neighbor in place of yourself, there's a lot more personal satisfaction. And contentment out of that, than loving yourself ahead of everybody else. Loving yourself ahead of everybody else will not give you any peace and contentment, no matter how much you do it or insist upon it.
1: Yeah, the lie is
0: It's the that
1: lie. If you love, the lie is that if you love yourself, you can love somebody
2: else.
0: And that's a big fat lie.: And that's a big, fat lie. That's why I said. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength is the best way to love your neighbor. Now, there's another thing that we're going to return to also. The gospel, this is, these are the demands of the law. Who can love God that way? Who can love the neighbor that way? The gospel, the good news of Christ's love, the gospel gives what the law demands. So the gospel creates faith where there is no faith, first commandment. And the gospel, out of faith in Christ and the bestowal of his gifts, creates love where there is no love. So if you have trouble loving God or loving the neighbor, the one you need more of is Christ, his forgiveness, his mercy. Only receiving Jesus for you will enable you to ever even make a possibility of a beginning at the law. Okay? All right. So there's the Ninth Commandment. Now, if you go to the tenth Commandments, page 66... What is the 10th commandment? You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. I just mentioned a moment ago a helpful way of distinguishing the 9th and the 10th. The 9th, you think of inanimate objects. Okay? A house cannot return affection to you. The 10th commandment names a lot of those things that can especially a house or relationships with workers or other people and so forth. We all have a vocation, a calling that establishes primary and secondary relationships with other people. And so the Tenth Commandment focuses on respecting and retaining those primary relationships and not usurping uh, the position. I'll give you an example that some people don't often think of. It would be sin against the Tenth Commandment to usurp the parental uh, position that belongs to a parent from the child of that parent. In other words, I could undermine the child's honor, obedience, and respect for the parent by attacking the parent in the presence of the child... In a way to try to get the child to trust me, because after all, your parents are dirty ratfinks. Okay, that would be uh, an example of not helping to maintain those relationships, but tearing them down. And so look at what the explanation says. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we do not entice or force away our neighbor's wife workers, or animals, or turn them against him. Stop. Or turn them against him. Doing things to turn away the loyalties, the honor, the love, the affection that rightly belongs to that person away from them to yourself or someone else. But look at the next phrase. Say that. But urge them to stay and do their duty. So to be there to help support a husband and wife to stay married is a good thing. As opposed to, I know your husband, he's a no-good fink. Why don't you dump the Okay? That might sound good, but it's not. I will pray for you. Go see your pastor. Let him help you with the problem. I know he does marital catechesis. You know, help and support him. Urge them to stay and do their duty. We take no pleasure in the destruction of the order in society or the order in relationships that are undermined and destroyed by sin. We take no pleasure in that. So even uh, even if a, a man is beating his wife and she has to separate from him, absolutely, I would say that has to happen. I take no pleasure in that. Would to God that the husband repent of his sin, get help to keep the marriage together? Okay, all right. So let's take a look at just a, there's just a couple of terms on the Ninth and Tenth Commandments, four of them, and then that'll take us into the terms on the close of the commandments before we read the text. To covet the self, this is page 309, the definitions. The selfish desire. Notice, that's why I asked you that question before. What is the overarching issue? Selfishness. The selfish desire to have or possess something or someone that is not given to you by God. Covet. Envy is a related concept. A bitterness, a resentment toward another person because of who he is or what he has. So what happens is you covet someone for what they have. And then when you can't get it, you attack them with bitterness. Oh, you think you're so good before, don't you? Okay. And so envy manifests itself in this destructive behavior a bitterness and a resentment because of what they have. A show of right, we talked about to use the law in ways that only appear right in order to accomplish your will or obtain positions, or things. Original sin. Now, sin itself is rebellion against God, mistrust. Original sin is the condition of being sinful. Adam did not only sin, but when he sinned, that original sin, he became sinful. So original sin is the sinful condition or nature that is a part of every human being since Adam. It is passed on to us at our conception. Which means that according to our origin from Adam, we have no natural fear of God, love for God, or trust in God. That has been compromised by becoming sinful. That's why elsewhere in the catechism it'll say, I can't by my own reason or strength believe, but the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel. So we sin in thoughts, we sin in words, we sin in deeds, because we are sinners. Susan. No, but isn't it it, um, interesting how there is a desire to ape the biblical language by using the concept of original sin and applying that, in this case, to racism? Yeah. All right. uh, Now, the close of the commandments. I'm going to take the terms now, and we're almost done for today, and then go into highlighting the explanation, and it wraps up what I put on the board over here. In the close of the commandments, he says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So there's a need to define what is the jealousy of God. Because normally, do we think of jealousy as a positive thing or a negative thing? Negative. Negative. But not when it's God's jealousy. His jealousy, I like to explain, is most like a parent, a father's jealousy for his children to protect them. He knows what is best for them. And if they violate what is best for them, he gets angry. Or if someone else violates that, he gets angry. You can think of all of these stories, you know, a a grandfather or a father whose children is abducted by some uh, horrible, wicked person, and the father goes ballistic and kills the guy and rescues the child. I say, hallelujah. Hallelujah. That's his job. That's his office. But that jealousy is this, no one loves you more than I do. No one knows what's best for you than I do. No one knows how to protect you like I do. And anybody, including you, who violate that, you know, falls under the anger or the wrath of God. Do you follow that? So that's the jealousy of God. And he really does know what's best. And that's what the Ten Commandments say. So... Uh, The demand of God's law that we give all honor and glory to him. And the threat, why? Because he is God and there ain't no one else. He knows what's good above all others. And it's the threat of God's law to punish all who transgress his commandments. Which is why you punish your children. It's not because you want to do it. Oh, I hope hope they're naughty because I just love punishing them. Even even the exacting of punishment or discipline is an act of love on God's part. If that's true of the parent who disciplines a child, how much more is it true of God? And we as fathers bear his name. God the Father, we bear God's name in our office. Punishment is to exact payment or restitution for sin. Restitution involves making things right as well as punishment. Exacting payment. Wrath, the just anger, just or righteous anger of God against the sinner that demands payment for sins. Now, in the close of the commandments, this is what the law demands. Restitution for sin, punishment. God's wrath is poured out against the sinner. When we talk about Christ fulfilling the law, remember, I did not come to destroy the law but to fulfill. He... Received the wrath of God and the punishment that you and I and the whole world deserve for our sins. That's why we can say he fulfilled the law. And when we say, as Paul does in Romans, love is the fulfillment of the law, that love for God with all one's heart and for the neighbor in place of oneself comes to its fulfillment in what Christ did. This is the greater righteousness that we must have and receive by faith, or we cannot inherit the kingdom. And so that leads us to mercy, the kindness and grace of God that does not hold our sins against us, but freely forgives us for Christ's sake. Now, the curse of the fall, and the next term, the promise, we will return to again when we're in the first article of the Creed under creation, and then man's fall into sin. The curse of the fall is God's act. Let me repeat that. The curse of the fall is God's act. Like a father who takes away the video games from the child. He might consider that a curse, but the father is doing it. So the curse of the fall... Because of man's fall into sin, God cursed the creation. In pain, you will bring forth children. You will sweat to do your work. That's the overarching two things, but it manifests itself in all manner of sickness, disease, earthquakes, famine, pestilence, and so forth, as it's listed. So, COVID-19 is a result of God cursing the creation. Which means, just as the law then has a spiritual function to show us our need for Christ, so also does the curse of the creation, the curse of the fall by God. And so, it is incumbent upon the church to offer the only ultimate help in the face of a pandemic, which is the gospel And then the promise, in contrast to this, God's word to Adam and Eve, that he would remove the curse and redeem the world from sin, which he did in his son. All right. And then the close of the commandments. Can we say that together on page 69? And we will review this next week. What does God, this is page 69, what does God say about all these commandments? He says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, the punishment that God delivers for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation is part of the causal effect of breaking the Ten Commandments on family, marriage, society. So all of those examples that I gave you before about single parenting, about copulating outside of the confines of marriage, the effects that that has on society when there's the dishonor of father and mother, The sins of the fathers are visited upon the children. It cannot help but break down the next generation and the next generation. There's a causal relationship. When we talk about creation and the creation of man, we will talk about how God created us to have communion with us, and then he also wanted us to share in the work of procreation with him, the work of dominion. So when we veer away from those primary commands to have dominion and to procreate and take matters into our own hands, the consequences are devastating to the third and fourth generation. But notice, there is love to a thousand, or mercy, to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments, which is a description of living by faith in Christ rather than ourselves. What does this mean? God threatens to punish all who break these commandments. Therefore, we should fear his wrath and not do anything against them. But he promises grace and every blessing to all who keep these commandments. Therefore, we should also love and trust in him and gladly do what he commands. And as we said, the review next week will zero in right here on the close of the commandments. Before receiving the Lord's Supper, it is always the custom in the church to hear the words of Jesus from the gospel. So I remind you of these words in this section that has been before us these last weeks from Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Thanks. Be and He makes us His sons in the waters of baptism, joining us to Christ, and in the absolution. He speaks that perfection, that righteousness to us to cover our sins and to animate our lives. Let us stand for the confession of sins. O Almighty God, merciful Father, I, a poor, miserable sinner, confess confess unto you all my sins and iniquities. (coughs) I have ever offended you, and justly deserve your temporal and eternal punishment. But I am heartily sorry for them, and sincerely repent of them. And I pray you of your boundless mercy and for the sake of the holy, innocent, bitter sufferings and death of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, to be gracious and merciful to me, a poor, sinful being. Upon this, your confession. I, by virtue of my office as a called and ordained servant of the Word, announce the grace of God unto all of you, and in the stead and by the command of my Lord Jesus Christ, I forgive you all your sins, In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Most merciful God, you desire all to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Grant that by the preaching of your gospel, we may be given the wisdom that leads to salvation. By the working of your Holy Spirit, keep us attentive to the teachings of your word Enlighten our minds, control our wills, and purify our affections. Let your word be a light for our path that neither the pleasures, nor the honors, nor the pains of this life may turn away our thoughts from the fullness of life that is found only in you. Enable us in sincerity of heart to follow you, the only true God. By your holy word, enlighten all who are in error, doubt, or temptation with the sure and certain knowledge of your truth, that all who live in sin may be led to repentance. Show mercy and grace to all those in our congregation suffering any distress, to those who are sick or hospitalized, and to those facing death. Let them know the sure comfort of your word. We commit ourselves and all for whom we pray to your fatherly care and benediction. Be gracious to us, Defend us by your power, direct us by your Spirit, that we may daily grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Savior, until we shall stand before you in the joy of everlasting glory. Through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. The Lord be with you.
1: And also with you.
0: Lift up your hearts. We lift them to. Let us give thanks to the Lord, our God. It is right to give him thanks and praise. It is truly good, right, and salutary that we should at all times and in all places give thanks to you, Holy Lord, Almighty Father, everlasting God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who out of love for his fallen creation humbled himself by taking on the form of a servant, becoming obedient unto death, even death upon a cross. Risen from the dead, he has freed us from eternal death and given us life everlasting. Therefore, with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven, we laud and magnify your glorious name, evermore praising you and saying, Holy, 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 holy Lord holy. God of Sabaoth. heaven and earth are full of thy glory. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord.
1: Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna.
0: Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of all creation. For you have had mercy on us and given your only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. In your righteous judgment you condemned the sin of Adam and Eve, who ate the forbidden fruit, and you justly barred them and all their children from the tree of life. Yet in your great mercy, you promised salvation by a second Adam, your Son Jesus Christ our Lord, and made his cross a life giving tree for all who trust in him. We give you thanks for the redemption you have prepared for us through Jesus Christ. Grant us your Holy Spirit that we may faithfully eat and drink of the fruits of his cross and receive the blessings of forgiveness, life, and salvation that come to us in his body and blood. Hear us as we pray in his name and as he has taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. Amen. O Christ, thou Lamb of God, that takest away the sin of the world, have mercy upon us. us. O Christ, thou Lamb of God, that takest away the sin of the world, Have mercy upon us. O Christ, thou Lamb of God, that takest away the sin of the world, grant us thy peace. Amen. Please come forward in groups of about ten. blood of Christ shed for you. The 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 body and blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ strengthen and preserve you body and soul in the true faith unto life everlasting. Depart in peace.
2: Amen.
0: O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. And his mercy endures forever. Almighty and everlasting God, we thank and praise you for feeding us the life-giving body and blood of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ. Send us your Holy Spirit, that having with our mouths received the Holy Sacrament. We may by faith obtain and eternally enjoy your divine grace, the forgiveness of sins, unity with Christ, and life eternal. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Let us bless the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.